You're listening to the Kingdom Project Podcast. These are discussions on biblical theology and interpretation. The emphasis is on context and grace. The goal is to promote biblical literacy by displacing and debunking most modern interpretations. The challenge is to engage in healthy conversation that may stretch, but sharpen iron. This is The Kingdom Project, and I'm your host, Marcus Hall. Chapter 4 of 1 John, looking at 17 through 21. May go a little further, we'll see. We'll just have to find out. So, um, you think about what we've looked at so far. We've seen that this theme, the overall theme in this chapter, is about love. It's been about loving one another. And it's an attribute, if you will, of those who are abiding in the Lord. Those who are abiding in Him. And... Because of that, we've also seen what abiding in Him is, uh, which is spending time in His Word, obeying His command, living as Christ lived, loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. So abiding in Him is the exact same thing as walking in the Spirit, having fellowship with Christ. And it is keeping ourselves in the love of God, which is His love, like we ended last week, His love that comes through us right it's divine love then in the maturity of 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 our walk and and abiding with him that flows through us because of the holy spirit to others so we ended in verse 16 last week so we'll look at that uh, as we go into this rest the rest of this chapter and it says so we have come to know and, and to believe the love that god has for us God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So that is to say that we have come to know and believe that in the past, with this continuing results in the present and in the future, that the love that God has for us expresses God's continuing love. Okay? That's what he's saying. And then he says, by this, in verse 17, okay, by this, is re- re- he's, it's referring back to what he just said, okay, that's the context. Because of the, this, right, that God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him, by this, love, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Okay, so makes a statement, and then he says, because, you know, because of that, love is love perfected in us. Okay, the word perfect, perfect or perfected, is, it's not the same as we would probably think of it today in English, okay? Perfect is without, like, you know, any flaws. It's used generically a lot of times, I think, as well, just like love is, Okay. The idea of perfect, though, in in Greek, meant to reach its complete development or to be mature. 
So what John is saying here is that God's love has reached its intended goal in us, right? That means that that perfected love is the love of God expressing itself in our love for each other. That love, the, the love that comes from God, it comes, it's strictly his. The love that he has for us and it reaches perfection in our love for for others, which is what God wants and what we have been commanded to do. We saw last week, it was a command. God's love reaches its intended goal when it flows from God through us and then to our fellow believers. So the love with which God loved us and does love us, it's to be extended in the fellowship of, of believers. So the result of this perfect, perfected love is that it gives us confidence in the day of judgment. That's how I ended last week. And then we'd, I said we'd see what that is. So John's saying that when a believer sees God's love flowing through them to others in, in whatever way, we've mentioned sacrificial deeds, that's our basis for confidence in the day of judgment. Regardless of one's beliefs when it comes to end times, okay, here, or last things, this text really doesn't even need to be deba debated that much in that whole uh, scheme of eschatology, okay? One view is that there will come a day, the world uh, ends all, on that day then, the resurrection of the dead and the judgment takes place when Christ returns physically to the earth. The other view says there is no end, resurrection takes place when you die, and you stand before the Lord. All right? So I don't have, we don't have to get into all the end, stuff, end time stuff. The purpose here is that for the believer, this judgment is not in a negative sense. All right? The Apostle Paul said a couple things referring to this. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, he said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Romans 14.12 says that each of us will give an account of himself to God. And in both of these incidents here, Paul is addressing Christians. And in context, this judgment is not for the purpose of condemnation. Now, he said whether good or evil, but it's just to take account of those things. All right. It's not for the purpose of condemnation because Christ has already borne our condemnation, right? We know there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8, 1. All right, so this isn't about all the things you didn't do, right? <laughs> really. So what we see here is that believers are to give an account of themselves to God and in the context here of 1 John 4, the account is of the issue of abiding in Christ and loving our brothers. Confidence, then, is one of the consequences of having this close fellowship with God. And believers have that now, all right? We have that now because we have that now. When, when you stand before Christ, uh, when you die, you're going to have that, that, uh, that confidence then as well. 
is what he's saying. You have the confidence to stand before the Lord because you know what Christ has done. He's paid for it. He, he gave his life for you, right? So John goes on to say, because as he is, so also are we in this world. And he uses the word world in a different way here in this, in this letter. This is not just talking about our position in Christ. It's also talking about our abiding in him, that we have confidence before Jesus because we are abiding in him and loving our brothers. So the basis for this confidence is our practical uh, growing, uh, our maturity, our maturing, our sanctification to the character of Jesus. Okay, The world cannot see Jesus, right? Like they don't see Jesus. Our calling then is to make him visible, right? Through our love, our abiding love for one another. We are to him what he was to the father in the days of his flesh on earth. The visible image of the invisible God. Okay. Verse 18. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So again, if you take that uh, in context, right? He's he's fear has to, uh, fear fear has to do with with punishment. So there is no fear in God's love, right? So seventeen says that when love is perfected with us, then we have this confidence. And then eighteen says that when we are not perfected in love, we don't have confidence. Right. So he's not saying that we should not fear God in the sense of regarding him with respect and reverence and those things. We know that a good, healthy fear of God is an awe and reverence and uh, respect. But it should be obvious uh, there because it states that fear involves punishment. Right. You could simply say uh, this for for the end of the verse that whoever fears punishment from God they're just, they, they don't, they're not assured in their, their salvation. Okay, if it's a Christian. No, <laughs> he's got the COVID. No, joking. If a Christian has this fear of being punished by God, then they don't have assurance in their salvation. They need to be uh, shown in the word that their salvation is complete and it's been complete by Christ. Okay, and then the unbelievers who do believe in God, but they still reject him, they have that fear. It's obviously, they're not, they, they don't know. They're not born again, okay? Verse 19, we love because he first loved us, all right? So, and that whole point in the context, again, is that we love God or others to an extent with a genuine biblical love. That we need to remember that such love did not originate with us. You know, goes to your question from last week. It does not originate from us or from within us. It comes from God who first loved us. God always takes the initiative. He loved us while we were enemies. And as we abide in him, his love is perfected in us. And then our love then is a fruit of the spirit. Okay. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has been, or who he, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. All right, this is a hypothetical statement, okay? Um, we've seen these, uh, verse 1 6 and 1 8, 1 10, and so on. 
Okay, like those former statements, this one almost certainly has has the opponents in view here, the false teachers, okay? The Gnostics, that they claim to love God, but they fail to love their fellow members in, within the Christian community. So for John, knowing God in, in involves this fellowship with him, walking in his light, being in him or abiding in him, and loving him. And these are all parallel versions of a single claim to have this intimate relationship with God. So John uses know here as a synonym for loving God. So he's talking about our communion, not our union. Okay, John doesn't say that, that love for God is more difficult than love for others. Rather, love for God without love for others is just impossible because God is love. <laughs> right? So he's saying that genuine love for God uh, will show itself in, in, in an, an observable love for others. And to be a disciple is to abide in Christ. So others will know that we are his disciples and know that we love him because of our love for one another, right? And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother, as verse 21. And that's the summary. That's You take all of chapter 4. That's it right there. He picks up this... This major theme here from, from the Last Supper uh, discourse that comes out of his gospel, uh, where Jesus stresses that his disciples' love for him must express itself in obedience to his command that they should love one another. Right? It's a new commandment. I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. It's John 13, 34. He also said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments in John 14, 15. And in 15, 12, he said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So we love one another because God loves us. He has loved us and does love us. We love one another because we love the Lord. Because we know that others have been bought by that price of the blood of Jesus just as we were. Right? Therefore, if I love God, who is love, then I will love those who he loves as well. Right? It should go without saying. So, <clears throat> let's move. All right. So, we will move into this last chapter of John. And right off the bat here. We're going to get hard, hit hard with this statement that's part of the doctrine of soteriology, okay? And I think that's why I kept this, the last part of four uh, short because we go into this. You get, verse 1 of chapter 5, okay? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Okay, so... I've debated with myself on how much to cover here because I know we've been over this. We've been over it in bits and pieces. I've given statements to you based on Scripture that we, uh, that we, we have been in such... In, in a, uh, how do I say it? <laughs> uh, that God... I've, I've said God chose you, right? God chooses you. You don't choose God. God has chosen you. 
God saved you. God decided. You didn't decide. And it's it's not that you, you decide to follow Jesus, but rather God chose you and gave you this free gift of faith. Okay, so that, that you have this verse. It's right here. So everyone who believes that Jesus is Christ has been born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So within evangelical churches, okay, there's this ongoing debate on this issue of soteriology, which is, it's a big word, that's salvation, okay? Soteriology is salvation. Um, it encompasses so many things, okay? And the ongoing debate is, is it, a, is it by choice of man's free will or of God's sovereign choice. Okay, now, now you've opened up like free will. Do we have free will or do we not have free will? Did you decide? Did God decide? There's all these, these paths. So let me put this verse here like this for you. Okay, everyone who is presently believing in Christ has been in the past born of God. Okay. The, what the first half of this is saying is that faith is the result and evidence of one's being born again and not the reverse. Do you understand? It's easily think born again, now they have faith. But it's faith then being born again. In other words, we are not born again as a result of faith. Birth precedes the believing. God has to give a man faith before he can believe, right? Okay. Are you with me? <laughs> I'll try to be as simple as I can. I'm not going to go that in depth here, but I've just given you different views, okay? I give you the different views. We'll move on to the next verse. However, if anyone needs to be, uh, needs this to be teased out even more, then you need to let me know, okay? So at the end, at the end so we can come back next week or whenever, and go more in-depth in this actual topic of soteriology. So there's different views, several different views of being born again, or regeneration, okay, within the church. But I'm only going to give you the two most popular, okay, and it's the Arminian and the Reformed views. The Arminians say that regeneration is not exclusively God's, and it's not exclusively man's, but work, okay? But the fruit of man's choice to cooperate with divine influences, right? However, there's some in the camp that believe it's all man's choice in his free will to choose God. And some also believe you can be saved by works. There's a lot going on there, especially... If you've been, uh, when you bring up that whole topic of free will, all right? But man and God work together in this, all right? Because he's d divinely influenced. Uh, God is drawing him and then you can, you can say no because of your free will. Or you can say, yes, I decided to do this. So it gives man credit as part of his salvation. The, re, the reform view teaches it simply that, that regeneration uh, is of the Lord. That's it. It's, it's of God's. God made us alive who were spiritually dead. And God made us willing 
who were unwilling. All right, so according to the Reformed view, salvation is a work of God from beginning to end, and that's that. And the Reformed view proclaims a God who saves. The Arminian view says, speaks of a God who enables a man to save himself. Does that make sense? Okay, getting deep, <laughs> getting in the weeds here. <clears throat> One position then makes salvation dependent on the work of God 100%, while the other makes it dependent on the work of man. And, and you'll get different views. Some will say, no, it wasn't on the work of man. It's both, stuff like that, okay? One, one regards faith as part of God's gift of salvation, okay? The other contends that faith is man's contribution to salvation. That's the main difference. They somehow came to believe. They managed to muster up their own faith to decide to repent to be saved, right? So when it comes down to that, you have one then that gives all the glory of salvation to God while the other divides the praise between God who built this machinery of salvation and man who by believing then operates that machinery. And that's why you see the shirts. I have decided. I decide. I made the decision. Right? They want to... Man, man wants to say, I, I took part in this. It makes you feel good, I'll admit. But remember when I said that birth precedes believing? How do you know if you've been born again? Right? Because the evidence of the new birth is faith in Christ. The only reason that you believe that Jesus is the Christ is because you have been born again first, which means that God gets all the glory for your salvation since you didn't play a single part in that new birth. He had to give you faith in order to believe, in order to repent, in order to... like So faith comes first. Being born again comes first. Then you are born. Uh, it gets confusing. It's just so. It's not confusing. Are you okay? Just thinking of why dead men can't raise themselves. Right. Yes. Yeah. You're spiritually dead. You're in sin. You're you're dead in sin and trespasses. Right. Dead man cannot raise themselves. Right. That's the point. And Lazarus, when raised from the dead, didn't say. Yes, I heard you, and I decided to get up from being dead. <laughs> it was all Jesus. Jesus said, come forth. He came forth. Okay? I don't want to get crazy in depth in there because it's just one verse. Like I said, if you want more on that, we can go more into that in a different sermon and dedicate a Sunday to it to explain it further. Okay? So the, this, the, the verse is saying that if someone believes in Jesus, they do so because they have been born again first. You're, being, you're born again. God brings you to new life. He resurrects you from spiritual death into life, and then you believe. All right? You don't believe, and then you're resurrected from spiritual death. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? 
The verse is saying if someone believes in Jesus, they do so because they have been born again first, which means that being born again precedes a, pers a person's believing because dead people, spiritually dead people, cannot believe. You see it in the culture today, right? We've already talked about it. Man wants to be independent, completely independent, do things their own way, right? We've already gone over this in this letter. What the world, how the world acts. We'll do it. We don't need God. Why? Because they're spiritually dead. They're, they're dead in their sins and trespasses. Spiritually dead people cannot believe. They have no, they have no desire to believe. They reject God and the gospel message. So all of this means then that God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. So John goes on to say in verse 2, By this we know that we love the children uh, of God when we love God and obey His commandments. Again, we have that main thrust of the letter that we've gone through in chapter 4. Love, our motive for loving the children of God should come from genuine love for God and obedience to His commandments. All right? In other words, the reason we love others should not not be natural factors, whether in them or in us, but rather we do, we do it because we're living in obedience to God, all right? God and to his word. Even, even though we may have a little, uh, a little, uncom little in common with somebody that's another Christian, we can still love them because we share that same parent, the same father, and are members of the same family. Verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So this love of God here refers to our love of God, not, uh, not the love of God for us. It explains what the love of God consists of and that we keep his commandments. And that term burden, burdensome is a figurative way of describing a commandment as difficult, okay? The, the, the test of your love for the children of God is whether you let the, 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 let the commandments of God govern your relation to them or whether they are difficult for you or the, His commandments are burdensome to you. When you love someone, uh, the things they ask aren't difficult. You know, they ask of you. They're a pleasure for you to do. An immature believer may view God's com commands as restrictive or difficult at first, but our Heavenly Fathers know that sin will damage and destroy us if we are not mature. So that's why sanctification is there as well. Verse 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We, as Christians, are overcomers, right? We battle the worldview and regulations of, of, of uh, every evil non-believer out there. <laughs> Jesus said to take heart because he had overcome the world. And this is why we are conquerors. This is why we are overcomers. It's because we are in union with Christ. And in our union with Christ, all he is and, and has, um, we are and we possess. So literally the text says, 
Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. All right? And it uses a present tense. It's a habitual, present. It's a permanent. It's ongoing. We are permanently triumphant, permanently overcomers and conquerors. We can never lose. The victory can never be taken from us. And it indicates that victory that has been achieved in the past once and for all has the, the effects right now are present day and ongoing. Believers are overcomers. They continue to be overcomers in and through Christ's victory over the world, over death, over sin. And when John says that faith, his primary, he says faith, his primary meaning is not the personal faith by which we believe. Rather, it involves what we believe concerning the doctrines of the word of God and that Jesus is the Christ. Every Christian has overcome, all right? I lost my spot. <clears throat> Every Christian has overcome the world by by their, their, that faith that Jesus is the Christ. Our faith has given us salvation, which is deliverance. And we have that faith because we have been born of God, right? God gave us life, and we believe the gospel. All the glory, then, of our salvation, it goes to God. So who is, who, who is it that overcomes the world? It says everyone, everyone who has been born of God, Right? Who, who is that over, overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? In verse 5, it's a rhetorical question. John's affirming that it's the person who believes that Jesus is the Son of God who has conquered the world. 6 and 8, 6 through 8. This is he who came by, by water and blood, Jesus the Christ. Not by the water only but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. So John comes back to this objective witness with which he opened this letter in chapter 1, 1, 2, and 3. He wants us to have a sure foundation of our faith that the authentic Christian life rests on God's testimony to the person of Jesus. He's speaking of Jesus and he's emphasizing his incarnation here, okay? And when we come to this phrase, water and blood, there's a handful of interpretations here. And I don't know why. For light, I was looking at them. I was like, why? It seems clear to me. I mean, what's the first? What do you think of? What do you think of? Water and blood. Huh? Baptism and, and think of Jesus' life, blood. Yeah. The crucifixion. Yes. Seems simple to me. And there's all these people that have all these different theories on this. And I, 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 I couldn't understand that. Uh, it's very straightforward. Water is a reference to Christ's baptism. Blood is a reference to his death on the cross. So he's emphasizing the historical foundations of the faith. Both his baptism and the cross are historic experiences that bear witness to Christ's divine human person. 
And in each of these events, the father intervened, right, in a miraculous way to bear testimony to his son. So historically, this is the one who came through John's baptism and through the baptism in blood on Calvary's cross. He came as the Messiah. He came uh, and inaugurated into his ministry and then completed the atoning part of it with his death death on the cross. So the, the expression, he came by water and blood, marked the two great stages of his ministry that, that, that we know of, that, that's recorded. And then the Holy Spirit then is a witness to this because within the functioning of the Trinity... All right, it's the Spirit's work to reveal, right? So in Jewish thought, a point is confirmed in a court of law by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So John here, he brings forth three witnesses that agree that Jesus, the Christ, is the Son of God. The Spirit testifies to the ministry of the Lord Jesus, testifies that atonement has been accomplished and because it was the God man who died on on Calvary and all then who believe that Jesus is the son of God overcome the world so his point John's point is in in is that God's threefold witness to his son the the spirit the water and the blood are trustworthy okay so John shows us that the three witnesses all agree and they are not just the testimony of men, but God himself. And I think we'll stop there. Any questions, comments, disagreements? Oh, the blood and the water. Yeah, but I think it's, um, just going back to the, um, what was it, the um, I have decided to follow Jesus view. I think it's just, I was thinking, I'm like, it's probably kind of important not to make a caricature of that because sure. it's not right. meant in a prideful way. It's meant in a, it's lack of knowledge or lack of having that view because that view is so pushed on people come up, make a decision, come up, you know, we're going to play music, come up, make a decision for Jesus, you know, throughout our whole lives, and we didn't know any better, you know, yeah. like, so it's, it's not an intentional prideful thing, it's just, I think, would you agree that it's just like a lack of knowledge of this view type of deal? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, it is a misinterpretation, they're not seeing it biblically either, and, and you're right, I'm not trying to make fun or make a caricature of that um i mean we're in the i mean here we're part of the you know baptist i mean you'll see it in the newsletters you know the people that wear those shirts and stuff i mean that's what they you know um not all see it that way but yeah you're right it's because of a lack of understanding or they don't see it it's not um and that's why i didn't go into the um antinomianism or the play uh plagi um Plagianism and plagianism and all that type of stuff because I think it's I think it's a an over overreach right. when re, re, the reform view is always like it's this and this and this and they go back and say it's all these heresies that have been condemned by the church councils and stuff 
And I'm like, I, I never really, you know, you're, you're right. I mean, I never took, for me, it wasn't like I took pride right. in that. Um, it was something to be proud of within the family and things like that. Or when a child gets saved or a child gets baptized, the family's proud of that. But it's not that mankind selfish type of pride, I don't think. Um, so, yes, I would agree we shouldn't make a caricature or make fun or mock in that way. But to, to use it as a, 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 a door to look at, go to the, go to the word and, and, and explain it. Um, because we really don't play any any part in right. it. But we don't know, you know, like right. the people that are making this, they don't know that. Right. Nobody, you know, they're not. And it's still and it's still really a fine line too, where it's like, yeah, but you did decide to do that, and it's like, well, then that's when you have to go into like his, you know, his um, irresistible grace versus prevenient grace and whether you can say yes or you can say no and if there's free will and there's not free will and like I said it's all these pathways but like you said you, you don't a lot of times I guess it would just be ignorance yeah, it's ignorance yes like, yeah they don't know they haven't been taught that yes they're being forced to come you know or their emotions or whatever it is yeah. or it is genuine salvation you don't know that you know like right so yes you can't be so judgmental that we're like you didn't do that you know like Okay. Well, I didn't mean to come off. I didn't no, mean for it to come off as judgmental. Yeah. And, no, and you may not be saying that, but either. I understand. It's like at the eye doctor. But, yeah, no, I, I know what you're saying. Yeah. I, I over-dramatize sometimes oh, when I speak I as well. Just, you know I what I mean? Yeah.